Luke chapter 10. Now, if you want to hear the Matthew sermon, I encourage you to come back tonight, and I hope that you will want to hear what we have to say about this great miracle that Jesus performed in the 14th chapter of Matthew. But this morning, I'd like for us to look at Luke chapter 10, and I'm going to preach this sermon to you that is in the series that we're doing on Sunday nights that has to do with evangelism. And I think that there is just a really a great need for all of our church to be involved in personal evangelism. Now, I've spoken on the church as a whole, and I don't want you to think marriage to different places around the world. I believe God has called us to do that, and that's why we, one of the reasons that we take an offering on uh, Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, whenever we come together, because we want to support God's Word and support the salvation of sinners through missionaries around the world. So I know that that's an important thing to do, but I also know this, that there is a more personal level to evangelism that we might even call the lifeblood of the church. And that is that all of us, that we have a part of evangelism, that we just don't give money to send somebody else to do the work for us. And a lot of times that's where we end up. It's just bring our money We may be faithful to do that and let someone else do the work. But God has called us to be involved ourselves and to have a part of his uh, bringing people to his kingdom right here in our own community. And being a Christian, I I think that you should learn, is uh, is not a lazy man's job. There's a lot of work involved in being a Christian. There's witnessing, there's evangelism, evangelism, there's this going out with the gospel, and that is a very laborious process. But it ought to be for us a labor of love, something that we really want to do. Because we're not going to bring people to Christ by wishing that it would come true. And we can't look out the windows of the building today if we could see through those windows and, and just think, well, all the people out there, whenever they get uh, not too busy doing something else, and when it's a nice day and they're not too busy, they'll stop in to see us, and lost people will come, and they'll hear what we have to say, and then they will believe, and then they will be saved. We're not to daydream like that. We're not to expect, although some people will come into the church that way, we're not to expect that, that God wants us to go out, and he wants us to talk with people, that you do that with people that you work with, people that you meet in different places, and give them the gospel of Christ. So it is truly, I think, a labor of love that God has called us to, And because it's a labor of love, that's the factor, probably the major factor that makes it so difficult for Christians. And that's because we have been called to love. We've been commanded to love. But love is the least practiced, I think, of all the commands that are given in Scripture. Now, actually, loving people and loving God branches out into all the commandments that God has given But we have to be very conscious about this, that how God wants us to love people, love their souls. I mean, ultimately, ultimately we are to love all people, and God has commanded us to love Him supremely, and He says to love our neighbors as ourselves. And that command is actually the focal point of this parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 10. And this is probably the most famous of all the parables. Now, Christians may spend more time on the other parables that Jesus gave. But if you were to take, I think, a survey of all the people that know anything at all about Christianity, that know anything about parables or stories that Jesus told, this is probably the one that stands out the most. And in fact, I believe that there are many people who believe that this parable is the essence of the gospel. 
And it is in, in a way, but not in the way that people think. Because there are people who think that if you are a good Samaritan, if you just help people, if you're kind to people, if you treat people right, then that means that you are a Christian. And so, in essence, they believe that what you do is what makes you right with God. And that's an interesting point because the Jews in Jesus' time fought the same thing. And they were interested in only one thing, and that's the way that they lived their lives. What does God expect me to do? And, and tip-top in their moral standards, they knew those things. The outward form they were very concerned with. But they were so wicked in their hearts that they could fuel the fires of hell for a thousand years all by themselves. God wants not only the outward form from us as Christians, he also wants the inward dedication. He wants the inward love to love him supremely and to love other people. And Jesus teaches this in this parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, here, though, is a man that Jesus taught and gave this parable to who thought that he was right on. He thought that he was doing exactly what he should do, that he had all the commandments right. But just like everyone... Just like all of us, he had failed miserably on God's scale because God's scale is perfection, and none of us meet the standard that God has given us. Now, along the way here in this story, I I think that we can make a secondary application that parallels, and and I'm going to get into the story in a moment. I know you've all heard it, but it's parallel. We want to parallel it with with the condition of a man who has a, a need for salvation and needs someone to help him. And the main point of the story is to show the miserable failure of the Jews and their incapability of being saved by God's law. That's the major point. And we always are concerned with context. We're always concerned with what is it that Jesus is really trying to say in this particular instance to this person and how is he teaching him. But in those main applications of the Scripture, as we're studying them out, we also find that there are many secondary applications. And I want to deal with today the secondary application here, secondary meaning that there are people who are without Christ, that they are helpless and they are hopeless, and we as Christians need to be the good Samaritan that comes along and gives them the help that they need. Now, I want you to look in Luke chapter 10, and we're going to start reading at verse number 25. And I'll ask you to stand one more time as we read God's Word. Luke chapter 10, verse number 25. This is how it all begins here. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do and thou shalt live. Now, I'll point out here, in the main application, this is where people often go astray because they think the very same thing that this ruler thought, that if I keep all of God's commandments, if I do everything right, that I will be saved. And in effect, Jesus says, you're right about that. You're right. If you keep all of the commandments, you will be saved. But as we'll see here in just a moment, keeping all of the commandments was the real problem. You can't do it. And so someone has to keep the commandments for you. He says, but he willing to justify himself said unto Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus answering said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. 
And by chance, there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked at him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word today. And Help us to speak clearly and bring out the thoughts that you'd have us to know concerning giving your gospel to those who are needy, people who need to be saved are helpless and hopeless and will die without you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This passage, as you're well aware, we just talked about, is about the Good Samaritan and the purpose that Jesus gave this parable was to teach a self-righteous Jew what it really means to obey God's law. We have two main characters that are in the story, and one of them is a downcast, down-on-his-luck Jew, and the other is the well-to-do Samaritan that had compassion on this man. Now, I want to take just a moment here in, in the beginning of the message to set for you the background of this story. And it's a very unusual story because of the hundreds of years of animosity that existed between Jews and Samaritans. Now, to understand the story well, you need to know who the Samaritans are. These are people that were half-breed Jews. They were a combination of, of Jews that were in Israel, but they had intermixed, intermingled with people that had come and conquered Israel, and they had... Uh, mixed together so that they, for the previous 700 years, so all their offspring was, again, what we call this half-breed mixture. And that caused the Jews, the ones who were what we would call the purebred Jews, it caused them to hate them. Uh, And even worse than that, the Samaritans rejected temple worship. Read in John chapter 4 about Jesus' conversation that he had with the woman at the well and she was tell, telling him, telling Jesus about where they worshipped. And they worshipped in Mount Gerizim when Jesus said, and the gospel said, and, and the word of God says that the Jews ought to worship at Jerusalem. And so the Samaritans were hated by the Jews because they had rejected temple worship. And they were worshipping at their own place that was in, within the borders of Samaria. And the contempt between these two people was equal on both sides so that this story actually happening would be a very remote possibility. And Jesus used it for that reason because he's teaching here that there has to be a radical change that happens in a person's heart to get him on a parallel track with God. And I hope you understand what a parallel track with God means because that means that we think as God thinks. And so we have to think in the way that God thinks about us and how he sees us. And God sees us as vile and wicked, unclean, unworthy sinners deserving of death. And so we have to see ourselves in that way. We have to realize the depravity and the helplessness that we have. 
And then we must call out to God for help to do the thing for us that we cannot do for ourselves. And I want to look at this story today in that, in that thought or in that vein and looking at it from the standpoint of helpless sinners who are in need of the grace of God. And again, we are those good Samaritans that have to help dying people that need the gospel of Christ. Now, in verse number 25 of Luke 10, uh, there's a new thought that begins in the chapter, and it comes after Jesus had pronounced a blessing on those that he'd sent out to be his witnesses. And these witnesses came back rejoicing because they had been given the power of God. They had been successful. They, they had been able to work miracles that were enabled by God that aid them in their witnessing. And if you've been with us through our study of Matthew, you would recognize that the first part of this chapter corresponds to what we studied in Matthew chapter 10. And that was about the calling of the apostles. And so the first part of this chapter is instructions to them about conduct and how they should go out and evangelize. And then there were 70 others that were sent out also, and those people were chosen to be the assistants and, of the apostles, and they were sent out two by two. And if you want to call them the door knockers or the advance team, that would be all right. And so they've come back, and Jesus pronounces a blessing upon them for what they had done in witnessing for him. But it seems that after every triumph that the devil is right there, he starts all over again trying to stir things up. Anybody ever found that to be true in your life? That when you are on the mountaintop with God and when you are rejoicing the most that the devil comes along and he wants to play king of the hill with you? And so what he desires to do is to knock you off that perch and bring you down and cause you to be discouraged. And we ought not to think that he didn't do that every single day in the life of Jesus Christ. He attacked his humanity. He tried to get him to sin. He tried to tear him down. And so there were always challenges to Jesus everywhere he went. Even though there were miracles he did, the great things that he did, yet there were challenges to him all the time. And this time... As it had happened other times, there was a lawyer that came to confront Jesus. And we learn from uh, reading Matthew chapter 22 that this man is not really an honest inquisitor. He, he's not really trying to find out how that he can have eternal life, but he'd been sent by the Pharisees and the Sadducees to try to trip Jesus up and to force him into a mistake so that Jesus would err on some point of the law and they could accuse him. Now, one thing that you'll notice about lawyers in Scripture is that they always look sleazy. They always come off as being sleazy, like a lot of lawyers today. Now, they were the experts of rabbinical law, and they should know these things, but they had been twisted and tied up in that system worse than all of the others. So it's a lawyer that comes to Jesus. Now, I heard a story about lawyers once, and as you know, I don't often tell jokes, but... We can see the contempt that people have for lawyers. They had it in that time in a certain sense, and we still have it today. But this story was about four doctors who hadn't seen each other since they had been interns in medical school, and they were all attending a medical seminar. A seminar. And so they got together, and they were talking about patients and about operations and who were the easiest patients to operate on. And the first one said, well, well, for sure, electrical engineers, they're the easiest people to operate on. He said, you open them up and everything inside is color-coded. And the second one said, well, no, no, it's not electricians, it's libra librarians, because you open them up and everything is alphabetized. 
And the third one said, no, it's not accountants, it's, or rather it's not librarians, it's not electricians, it's accountants, because you open them up and everything is numbered. But the third one said, or fourth one rather said, see, I don't tell jokes, the fourth one says, fourth one says, no, the easiest people to operate are to operate on our lawyers. They're really easy because you open them up and there's no heart, there's no guts, there's no spine, and their rear ends are interchangeable with their brains. <laughs> See, lawyers, lawyers just were never... That's why I don't tell jokes. <laughs> lawyers were never a match for Jesus, so he easily confounded them. So when you've sent the best of the best against Jesus, you've, t- you've taken the very best that you can, and you've tried to get him to make mistakes, and you can't do it, and the people, the Pharisees, Sadducees, they just did the next best thing, and that's not talk to him at all. Just withdraw. Don't ask him any more questions, because you can't argue with him. You can't defeat him. So each time that the scribes and Pharisees and the lawyers came, they were shamed, and they fell a few more notches in the popularity polls. But it is this lawyer, though, that opens up this line of questioning to Jesus that caused him to relate the story of the Good Samaritan. And so Jesus begins the story in verse number 30 by talking about a certain man that went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he's talking about something that happened along this road. And this road was one that was very familiar to the people that he was talking to. It was about a 20-mile journey between Jerusalem to Jericho, and this was a very dangerous road for people to travel. Jerusalem is about 2,300 feet above sea level, and the Dead Sea, close to where Jericho is located, is about 1,300 feet below sea level. And that's really one of the most interesting uh, places in the world, I think, just a really interesting terrain, because as you're coming down off the mountain of Jerusalem, you can look off to the southeast, and there you see the brilliant blue of the Dead Sea that's out there before you. And the Dead Sea is just south of where this road turns off in the desert to go into Jericho. So the road drops very steeply in that short distance of 20 miles, and there's an elevation change of 3,600 feet. So it's a winding, twisting road. And along that road, there are various outcroppings and there are rocks and there are places for thieves to hide. And and you might call that a happy hunting ground for thieves and robbers. In the 5th century, Jerome said that it was still nicknamed the Bloody Way. And in the 19th century, travelers along that road still had to pay protection money to sheiks in order to be order not to be robbed as they went down the road. So it was a very dangerous journey, and the people that heard Jesus tell this, they knew the reputation of the place, and they knew it was a place where a person could very easily be beaten, robbed, and killed. So that's the background of the occasion for Jesus telling the story. It's a lawyer who comes to him and and asks him questions, trying to trick him, But we also have a setting for the story that he told. That's the Jerusalem to Jericho road. As we hurry along this morning, I want to show you how this story relates to merciful evangelism. Now, first we'll look, or secondly, we'll look at the characters. And there are four that make up the main character cast in this story. First, there is the traveler. Jesus said that there was a certain man that went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, I want to remind you that this is a fictitious story. Jesus didn't have a certain real person in mind, but he uses the story as an illustration. 
And as this man is traveling the road, he encountered some thieves. He was beaten and he was robbed and he was left for dead. And you can imagine, just as these people did, that that traveler who decided that he would go along that road on his own was very reckless and perhaps he was somewhat foolhardy to even attempt it. He tried to travel across this Jericho road that everybody knows is a dangerous place to go, a dangerous road. Hardly anybody ever attempts to travel this road alone, especially if they're carrying some goods or valuables or even if they weren't. It wasn't a good idea to be out there on this road by yourself. And so what people did was to travel in convoys or they traveled in caravans. It's much more difficult for a thief to rob a caravan or to overtake a group of people than it is one man. So as we look at the story, we see that this man who decided to go on his own had no one to blame but himself for this bad situation. Now, I think we can stop there for just a moment and we can compare that to the typical sinner because what we do when we get into trouble is we want to blame God for our troubles. We want to say, God... Uh, God, why did you do this to me? But we're the ones that take the direction that we want to go. God doesn't make our decisions for us. People often say, well, God, why did you allow this to come into my life? Why did you allow that to happen? And it's not uncommon for pastors to sit down with people and they'll start out by saying, I'm angry with God. I'm angry with God because this thing has happened. And yet we find this man right there in the midst of his bad decision, suffering the consequences of his bad decision because he had made the decision himself. It wasn't God that put him there. It wasn't anybody that put him there but himself. And we think about things like that, and it may not always be our own decisions that get us into trouble. It may be the decisions of others, or we have helped somebody into their bad position. And the reason that we do is because all of us are sinners and all of us are disobedient to God. So this was a bad position for this man. He was where he shouldn't have been. He made a bad decision to go where he shouldn't have gone. And so now he faces the consequences of that bad decision. And so we stand back and we look at this man and we say, well, it's all his fault. He knew better. He knew that something was likely to happen to him. If he travels the road alone, there will be trouble. So here is a person who got exactly what he deserved for making such a stupid decision. But you see... In this story that Jesus spends no time, no time talking about how the traveler got there, why that he was there. We're the ones that have to add all the details. The main thing here is that Jesus is trying to get across that there is a person here who is in need of mercy. A person who has fallen on hard times, a person who has great difficulty in his life, and he needs mercy. And you know, that's the way that Jesus sees every one of us. He sees us as people who are in sin by the choice that we have made for ourselves. It's not like Jesus suddenly discovers an accidental sinner, that a person was going along, he didn't, just didn't mean to ever sin, but it just happened to him. Jesus doesn't find sinners like that. He finds all of us that are guilty and have chosen a way of sin because that's the way that we want to go. And so I'm glad myself that when Jesus saw me, he saw somebody that was in need of his mercy. Somebody who had taken the wrong road and done the wrong thing and had sinned against him, and it's my fault, and yet he came and he showed mercy to me. Now, I know that's hard for some of you to believe, that you believe, well, the pastor, no, he's holy and righteous. If anybody's ever good and always was good, it's him. I know that's what you're thinking. But that's not the truth. 
I'm somebody that had chosen the wrong way as well. I was a person who was in sin, and I was going to suffer and would suffer for the bad decisions that I made, and I was helpless to do anything about them. The consequences are coming, and I can't do anything about it. And all over this city, and perhaps even sitting in this room this morning, there are people that are in need of mercy. And if you're a lost sinner, whether you know it or not, you are somebody who's need, in need of mercy because you're traveling alone on a very dangerous road. And the sinner may say, well, no, I'm not alone. There are lots of people just like me. There are lots of people who don't believe in Jesus. I've got safety in the numbers. And so if I go to hell, there, there's going to be plenty of company there for me. Can you imagine this traveler lying on the side of the road? He's been beaten and robbed. He's dying there, and he thinks to himself, well, everything's okay because this has probably happened to a dozen people up and down this road. They're all in the same boat that I am. He's beaten half to death and lying there and comforting himself with the idea that there are other people that are dying just like he is. Well, that's not any consolation. And it's not a consolation for a person without Christ who's dying and on the way to hell to think about there are other people that I know and other people that I love that are going to be in hell with me. That is one of the most torturous thoughts that a person can have, that there are people that I love and I care about who are also dying and go to he- going to hell. And hell is really an, also an agonizing thought for Christian people. We're not going to hell, but there are... Christians that come to me after the preaching, uh, after a sermon on hell, and they come with deep concern in their eyes because they have loved ones that they know that aren't saved. And do you know that's as it should be? Hell should shock a Christian far more than it does a lost person. And that's because our eyes have been opened to understand what it's really all about. Our eyes have been opened to see what we were saved from and what hell is going to be like. We have an understanding of this awful place. And that ought to put a burden deep down in our hearts that we want to seek people that are dying without God's mercy. You see, the gospel is the way out for them. And folks, if we don't pity them, if we're not concerned about them, and if we don't come to them with the mercy of the gospel, we inflict upon them the worst cruelty possible that you could do to anyone. Withhold the way of life from them is what we're doing when we don't give people the gospel of Christ. You see, what God has intended is that there would be mercy for sinners. And so he did provide a relief. He provides a means of comfort. And we're cruel to withhold that from people. So it's not God that restricts mercy. It's his people that restrict it. Because we are not out on the road helping to find these people. So the traveler on the Jerusalem to Jericho road represents people that are in need of mercy. Well, the next character in the story are the thieves. And in verse number 30, it says, And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, we're certainly not going to say that the thieves are givers of mercy. These thieves represent people who are takers of mercy. I mean, what can you say about takers other than they like to take? These are people that don't care about the needs of others. They're far more interested in taking from somebody than they are giving something to somebody. In fact, they never think about such things. They only think about themselves. So they don't really place any value on human life. It's, what about me? What about me? What what do I need? 
And I'm sorry to say, folks, that there are many Christians who are actually takers of mercy. Did you know that? Christian people can be takers of mercy. And you say, how? Well, what do they do with their tithes and offerings? What do they do with what belongs to God? They spend it on themselves. Do you ever wonder how it's possible that a church like this is able to meet on Sunday mornings and how we're able to have a building to meet here, how we pay for it and how we turn on the lights and the air conditioning for your comfort today? And how is it that a church sends out missionaries around the world? Oh, we do that through the tithes and offerings of God's people. And so when people don't give to God what he requires, they actually become the takers of mercy. And so if this work was to depend upon the ones in the church that don't give to God, there would be no work here. There's no Baptist church on this corner if God's people are are sitting in the pews and it's up to them to make sure the church continues. They become takers of mercy and they never help share the burden. And so a non-giver actually preaches his own sermon. He preaches his own sermon. And he says, I'm only interested in my needs. I don't care about church work. I don't care how many people are going to hell. I've got my own problems to deal with. And so I'll put it to you bluntly. Christians that do not give to God are thieves and robbers. And God said that, not me. I don't mind repeating what God says. In the book of Malachi, it says, Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. So you don't want to be a taker of mercy. You want to be a giver of mercy. Now let's suppose for a moment that you're not able to go out. And you're not able to go to the different places in the world. There are roads on, other si- uh, 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 on the other side of the world where there are travelers and you'll never reach them. You'll never be able to see them. Well, are you unconcerned about them? And would you withhold shelter and clothing and food and the help for them? Would you be responsible for taking dollars and the supplies and the gasoline and all the things that's needed for a missionary to go out and give people the gospel of Christ? Are you so unconcerned about that that you wouldn't give because you're too busy concerned about whether you're able to make your TV payment this month? God doesn't want us to be takers of mercy. There are sinners wasting away along the roads because missionaries don't have the funds to go out on the roads to find them. And you need to think about that before you decide to disobey God with your tithes and offerings. Thieves and robbers are not merciful evangelists. Now, thirdly, the characters we find here are the priest and the Levite. And the priest and the Levite are not takers of mercy. These are keepers of mercy. See, these are people that have been shown the mercy of God, but they decided that they're not going to share the mercy of God. You look at the history of the Jewish nation, and you'll find countless times over and over again that the Jews were shown mercy. I mean, they were frequently disobeying God. They were always on this roller coaster, the ups and downs of the blessings of God, and then of the chastisements of God. And Always when they were at their lowest point and when they called on God, God was always merciful to them. We look at these two characters and we think how strange this is. Here's a priest. Here's a Levite. These are holy men of God, but they're not interested in giving mercy. They're only interested in the good fortune that they have mercy. Now you notice in verses 31 and 32 of the text, and by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him... 
he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. Now, here are two men that showed a little bit of interest. They did stop and look. You ever notice when you're driving down Highway 101, there's an accident on the other side of the road, but your side is the one that stops? And why is that? It's because you and everybody else is a rubbernecker. You want to look and see what's going on on the other side. And there's a lot of Christians that are like that. They want to look and see what's going on. But when it comes time to actually do something, then no way, baby, not me. I don't have time for that. And then you have a list of excuses as long as your arm. So many Christians are content to hold on to the mercy that they've been given by God and not to share it with anyone. And as we look at this, we think, well, what a terrible thing this is for the holy men of God not to go over there and bend down and lend aid to this man and bind up his wounds as the Samaritan did and take care of him. What a shame for them. If anybody is supposed to help other people, surely it's the priest and surely it's the Levites. Well, let me read something to you from 1 Peter 2, verse number 9. Peter says, but ye are a chosen generation. Ye, that means you, the people he's talking to, the ones who are the people of God, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So do you see what Peter calls each and every one of us here who has believed in Jesus Christ? He says, you are priest. You are priest. And what does he say that a priest does? He shows forth the praises of Jesus Christ who has called him out of darkness into his marvelous light. Well, you might ask the question, how do we show forth the praises of God? Well, you know how? You lift up and you exalt Jesus Christ. And you know what happens when you exalt Christ? He explained it himself. He said, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to me. And so... That's how you get people saved. You lift up Jesus Christ, you exalt him, and when you do that, you become a merciful evangelist. Don't be a keeper of mercy. Don't, don't be someone who looks at the poor traveler and passes by on the other side. Give him the gospel of Christ and share mercy with him. And not only show mercy to the lost, but it's our responsibility as people of God, members in the same church, to also share mercy with those who are believers. Be concerned when they have problems. Share with them, help them, relieve their needs. Help them when they need help. Pray for them when they need your prayers. So don't just look at people as you pass by. The Bible says you are a priest, and so you do what priests are expected to do. So the priest and the Levite, they're keepers of mercy. And we want to be merciful evangelists, ones who always give mercy to others. So lastly today, I want to talk to you about the fourth character of the parable. And the last character is the Samaritan. And I promise you that as soon as Jesus mentioned the Samaritan, that the ears of this audience perked up. They were all expecting well, now we're going to hear about the most dastardly character of all. Surely the Samaritan, he, he's the one who's the real villain in this story. And as I've stated, the Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritan, word Samaritan described their ethnic background, but it was also a word of hatred. 
And we all know those racial epithets that we ought not to say. Well, this is the worst thing that you could say to a Jew if you talked about Samaritans or even called him a Samaritan. That was a slam against your character, a slam against your upbringing. This is a despicably derisive word. But then we look and see what Jesus says about the Samaritan, verse number 33. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him and went to him and bound up his wounds and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. So the Samaritan didn't take mercy and he didn't keep mercy. He gave mercy. And this is the one that Jesus wants us to see. The merciful Samaritan who sees this hurting traveler, who sees the condition of this man through eyes of compassion. And so he doesn't pass by on the other side. He doesn't go his way. But the word says he came near him and he helped him. Now let me tell you about the one who is the most compassionate of all. That person would be the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew 9, 36... Jesus said, or the word says, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. In Romans 5, 8, it says, but God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Jesus becomes the example for us of a merciful evangelist. And he taught his disciples. He said, the disciple is not above his master, but the one who is to be perfect will be like his master. And so that means that your duty as a Christian is to be like the master. If he has compassion on the lost, you have compassion on the lost. If he takes care of the needs of people, you take care of the needs of people. If people need help, you give them help. If he gave mercy, then you ought to give mercy. I want you to notice something about the parable. Jesus was very, very specific about giving mercy. He didn't leave it in general terms. The Samaritan performed an action. I mean, he physically went over and showed compassion on this man. Now, the Samaritan could have examined him from, uh, got up close to him, examined him, and could have bent down and whispered in his ear and said, Oh, I feel so sorry for you. This is really bad. It's just terrible that somebody did this to you and then go on his way. That wouldn't have been any good, done any good. Here's what James says. He says, If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? James says, What does it profit to acknowledge someone has a need but not to do anything about it? And the answer to the question is it doesn't profit anything. It doesn't do any good until you put feet and actions to your words. And so the Samaritan crossed over to the other side. He got down. He bound up the wounds of this man and then put him on his own beast and took that man to a place of safety. And that's what you do if you want to be really merciful. There was a tourist in Mexico that was walking down a... Mexican beach at sunset and he's walked along he saw that there was another man that was coming towards him in the distance and as he grew nearer he noticed that this local native this man who lived there was bending down and picking something up and throwing it into the water and time and time again as he watched him he kept throwing things into the water now the tourists kept approaching and he got even closer 
And he noticed that the man was picking up starfish that washed up on the beach. And one at a time, he was throwing starfish back into the water. And so the tourist was puzzled by that, and he approached the man, and he said, Good evening, friend. I was wondering what you're doing. And he said, I'm throwing starfish back into the sea. You see, he said, it's low tide right now, and these starfish have washed up on the beach, and if I don't throw them back into the sea, they'll die. And the tourist said, well, I understand that, but there must be thousands of starfish on the beach. You can't possibly reach every one of them. And and besides this, there's starfish and beaches all up and down the coast, and there are thousands of them, probably millions of them. You can't get to them. You can't possibly make a difference to them. And this local native bent down and picked up yet another starfish and threw it back into the sea. And he replied to the man, it made a difference to that one. And that's what the Good Samaritan did on the road to Jericho. He made a difference to a man, a difference to a man who is in need and mercy. So he didn't stop and say, well, you know, there's a million other people on the other side of the world, and they have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I just can't do anything about it. He was concerned about the one who was in front of him, and it was within his power and ability to do something to help. And that's the way it begins. It begins with one lost sinner that Christ uses you to win to him with the gospel. See, merciful evangelist is what God wants. We can know a thousand doctrines. We can have all of that right. We can be theologically, theologically correct as we can be. But how have we done what God has told us to do unless we do this? Unless we bring souls in, unless we win people to Jesus Christ. And that's a question for all of us. How merciful have we been to those that are dying in sin? Jesus confounded the lawyer with this, and that's because his heart wasn't right. This man couldn't identify with helping someone who was an enemy. He's a lost Jew, and depending upon himself, he can't identify with this idea of helping that enemy, that Samaritan that he so long hated. But remember, he's somebody whose heart hasn't been changed. Your heart has been changed. You're never going to reach perfection in yourself. You have to reach it in Christ. But the Bible does say you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And that means that you can be a merciful evangelist. Your heart has been changed, and so the desire should be there, the love should be there, because God says this is what you do supremely, You love him, and you love your neighbor as yourself. And how how can you show love for your neighbor, for the ones that you meet, the ones you're in contact with? How can you really say you love them when you withhold the very thing that they need the most? And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word that we read, the example that Jesus gave. We understand the primary application that Jesus made to this man, and that is the best that he could do in trying to keep commandments was never going to save him because he couldn't be perfect. And so Jesus told him to love God with all of his heart and love his neighbors itself, and that was impossible for him to do because of the wickedness that was there. And Lord, we take the secondary application today, and we apply that, that there are people that are dying without you, And they can't change, they can't do anything 
They can't help themselves. They're lost in sin. And we who have been given the mercy of Jesus Christ and the salvation of our souls ought to be willing to give that same mercy to others who need to hear. I pray, Lord, you lay that on our hearts. May every day we have a deeper and greater desire to see people come to know you. Speak to our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.